We're continuing in our series of messages from the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians. I've titled the whole series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. Uh, I wanted to start out talking about uh, kind of a personal experience of my own. Being a pastor's kid is not easy. I grew up as a pastor's kid. That's why I know Spanish. My parents felt that God called them to go into the mission field, and they went to Spain, and I grew up in Spain. For me, being a pastor's kid meant that every few years we moved from one country to another, and I had to get reacquainted with the local language and the local culture and try to figure things out and make friends and start all over again. Uh, You see, it was very clear to me growing up that my parents had made a decision that God was going to come first in their lives. And uh, in my life, that meant that uh, my life would be arranged around what God was trying to tell us to do, not around what I wanted my parents to do. And uh, sometimes that can feel frustrating. Um, I know it's been the same for my kids. We have moved from one city to another on a few occasions because we felt God was leading us. And we have tried to make it clear to our kids that God comes first and we will follow God first and worry about you second. I have discovered, however, that having that type of priorities in my life has meant that when my children have made loving them very difficult, God has sustained my ability to continue loving them. I don't think, if I hadn't done it that way, that I would have had the reserves necessary to weather some of the things that I've had to weather as being a parent. I know from my own experience with my parents that the fact that my, my dad's made it an absolute priority, God comes first, <clears throat> didn't mean that he didn't love me. In fact, it meant that the things God was doing in his heart turned out being a benefit to me. He loved me better than he ever could have if he hadn't put God first. And sometimes we we find that the grace of God plays out this way. Through uh, difficulties and hardships and dark moments, God is using his grace in the midst of those things when we put him First, That's what Paul's talking about in the passage we're looking at today. I've titled the message, Living in God's Grace, and we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians opens a new section that Paul is going to devote two chapters to. Now, uh, that is a huge chunk of this letter. Two full chapters Paul is going to devote to talking about the collection or the offering that he is gathering for the saints in Jerusalem. And let me explain a little bit about that background to that offering because Paul has ended up, even though he was a Jew and trained as a Pharisee and uh, initially was very hostile to non-Jewish people and his only interest was what God was doing with his people, the Jews, Uh, that was his initial stance. But when he came to encounter Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, his, his life was completely changed. And the moment he came face to face with Jesus and surrendered to him, Jesus told him, I am going to send you to the other nations, to the Gentiles. And you're going to be my apostle, not to the Jews, but to the other nations of the world. And Paul uh, 
devoted himself to that. We read in the book of Acts of these three missionary journeys that Paul uh, went out on. He was sent, God set him and others apart to be sent out by the church in Antioch in northern Syria. And they went in what was then the region of Asia Minor on their first trip. Their second trip, they visited that and went up north to Macedonia and down south to Greece or Achaia as it was called back then. And in their third trip, which he is just wrapping up as he writes this letter, they have been able to go to the city of Ephesus, which was the biggest and most important and wealthiest and influential city in Asia Minor. And he's had two and a half years there of powerful ministry. But what has the pattern been for Paul's ministry? Well, most often he would go into a new city, he would go to the Jewish synagogue, and there he would begin talking to them about Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of God to the Jewish people, and uh, the, the, the purpose and calling of Israel for God to use them to share this with the whole world to become this source of blessing to every family, every nation on earth. And Paul is sharing this in the synagogues, and sometimes some of the Jews would believe, but most often uh, the Jews would largely reject what he was saying, and Paul would then say, okay, I, I started with you, but if you're not interested, then I will turn and share this with the other people, the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were always very thrilled that Paul was turning to share with them about Jesus, and they would come to faith and a church would start. But then the Jewish people would get very angry with Paul for sharing with the Gentiles what they thought was only theirs to keep. This favor of God and this uh, scriptures and the promises of the Messiah and all these things. They thought Paul had no right to share that with the Gentiles. So they would chase Paul out of town and we see it time after time. Or they would bring him before the authorities and, and accuse him of being a troublemaker. And over and over the Jews chased Paul after town, Paul out of town after town. Not only that, but in these three missionary journeys, he's discovered another problem. Not just that there are Jews in all these cities where he's been sharing about Christ that are hostile to the faith, but he's also found that there are Jewish believers from Jerusalem who are now coming in behind him to visit the churches that he started in Asia Minor, and they are trying to convince them that they have to keep the old covenant of the law of Moses or God will not be okay with them. And we know from uh, his letter to the churches in Galatia that Paul was adamantly uh, opposed to this perversion of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has come as the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant and now he initiates a new covenant that is centered in faith in him and we trust our hearts and lives to him and that is all God requires from us up front. It's not about keeping rituals and other things but it's about entering into this relationship of trust in him that governs our whole living. And, and these Christian Jews have been coming behind Paul and trying to say, no, that's all that's great that Paul's talking about, but let's try to add on to the faith in Jesus, the old covenant, all the rituals of the law of Moses. You have to keep all of these things. And Paul has had troubles with Jewish people, both from inside and outside the church. And you might think Paul's reaction to that would be, okay, you guys don't want me. I'll just go to the people who do want me. You Jews don't like me? That's fine. The Gentiles love me. 
They're thrilled to death. So uh, I'll just ignore you altogether. I want nothing. You don't want anything to do with me. Well, I don't want anything to do with you. Paul could have responded that way, but he didn't. We never see Paul do anything like that. In fact, Paul loved the Jewish people. He was deeply grateful to God for his Jewish heritage, that he grew up knowing the old covenant and understanding the background of what Christ had come to bring to fulfillment. He felt so enriched by that, and he felt privileged to be a Jew, and he loved the Jewish people deeply. In fact, the next letter he writes, once he finally gets down from Macedonia where he is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, once he makes it down to Corinth, uh, he will write the next letter which is Romans and in that letter he's going to say you know if I could give up my own soul and by doing so I could rescue all of my Jewish people I would do it Paul never responded to the rejection he got from his own people with the same kind of hatred or hostility he loved them deeply and even those within the church who were making his ministry so hard by trying to bring in the law of Moses into faith in Christ, uh, even those he did not hate. In fact, he could see that there was a, a wedge being driven in the church and that uh, there was this tendency developing where we might end up with a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church and Paul never in any of his letters makes any mention of that even as a possibility it's not even on the horizon because Paul understands what God has done in Christ is he in, he is reconciling the world to himself and he is bringing together all things in heaven and on earth in Christ so, if anything, the church as the people of God on earth need to reflect the fact that we are all drawn together in Christ. And there has to be an absolute unity. There can't be uh, different versions of it. There's uh, the, the church of this and the church of that, but, but that there's this absolute unity across the board. One people of God. Okay. <laughs> uh, Paul, Paul uh, believes this deeply. And uh, right now we're less than 10 years, as he writes this letter, we're less than 10 years from open rebellion against Rome in, in the territory of Israel. Things are heating up. Nationalistic fervor is on the rise. Uh, from, the, from the zealots now are arising uh, people called the Sicarii. And that's the Aramaic word for dagger because these are assassins. And if people are not uh, helpful enough to Jewish causes or they feel like they're, they're helping the Romans rather than helping Jews, they'll just murder them. Uh, stab them in a back alleyway somewhere. And the, the tensions are rising and pressure is rising, but Jesus had taught his followers that they are to submit to earthly governments and authorities and that they are not to be militant and uh, get involved in these kinds of wars, but uh, trust in God as the sovereign over all. So they aren't joining in all of this. Um, 
which means that that's causing losses of job opportunities, that's causing losses of business. People are becoming hostile towards the Christians, and the Christians in Jerusalem are going through a rough time. They are suffering a, uh, a period of lack. They don't, they don't have everything they need. They're, they're going through a difficult time, and Paul is aware of this. And Paul could say, yeah, well, you deserve it, but he doesn't say that. And what, he, what, what happens as he's there serving in Ephesus, and I've been to Ephesus this past year. Boy, that was a wealthy city. I mean, the ruins there, uh, it's the crown jewel of, of archaeological stuff in Turkey today. I mean, they put the Ephesus, uh, what is it, the library, I think, uh, is kind of their big uh, promotional image that they show everywhere. The city, it's white marble everywhere. I mean, it was a, a glorious, wealthy city. And as Paul is sitting there and sharing the gospel and God is working powerfully, even though it's a very difficult time of ministry for him, God is moving powerfully and, and people are coming to the faith. And not just poor people, but wealthy people are coming to the faith to the point that we're told in the book of Acts that s s some of the wealthy people who came to faith in Jesus decided, you know what, we're going to trust in Jesus and we're done with all this magic and spells and incantations. And they took their magic arts books, and books in antiquity were very expensive, they took them and gathered them together and burned them because they didn't want them and they didn't want anybody else to be deceived by this demonic stuff. So they burned it and uh, the, they calculated the worth of the books that they burned. 50,000 pieces of silver. One piece of silver was a full day's wage. So you would have to work 50,000 days to accumulate that amount of money. That's a lot of money. So clearly, Paul, Paul is sitting there and, and people are coming to the faith that have a lot of wealth and an idea comes up in Paul's heart. He says, you know, God has given people here so much and the people in Jerusalem have so little. Why don't I gather an offering from these Gentile churches and go and deliver it to Jerusalem and this will show them that God has raised up brothers and sisters in Christ who love them, who are in all these Gentile churches. Yes, they're not following the law of Moses, but they are following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and they share in the same kingdom of God with you. And he expected this offering to be a, a, a uniting uh, work that it would join hearts together and uh, move the hearts of the people in Jerusalem to understand that the Gentile church was uh, with them in this and that they loved them. That was what motivated Paul to do this gathering of the offering. So he has gathered significant, I think, significant uh, amount from Ephesus and has traveled north to Macedonia, the, you know the cities in Macedonia, Philippi, where he was uh, flogged and put in chains and uh, kicked out the next day, and then Thessalonica, where he was there for about a week before the Jews in the synagogue chased him out of town, and then Berea, where he was a few days before the Jews from Thessalonica came to Berea and chased him out of Berea. Those are the city, those are the churches we're talking about in Macedonia. So he's in that area as he writes this letter, and he, he decides, before he starts talking about the offering and, and encouraging the church in Corinth to give to it, 
He wants to tell them about what God's been doing in the churches in Macedonia, where he is right as he writes the letter. So let me read, beginning in verse 1. But we make known to you, siblings, God's grace, which has been given among the congregations of Macedonia, that in a severe testing of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their abysmal poverty overflowed in the riches of their generosity, that I bear witness how, as they were able and beyond what they were able, of their own initiative, they were begging us with a great earnestness for the grace and fellowship of this service to the saints. So Paul says, let me tell you, uh, about God's grace that I have witnessed here in the churches of Macedonia. It's interesting to me that he doesn't talk about uh, how much money the people in Ephesus have given, but he wants to talk about what God's been doing in the churches of Macedonia with regards to this offering. And so he describes it as God's grace that God has given to these churches. God has generously shared his grace with these churches. And how does he describe the grace of God among the churches in Macedonia? He starts by talking about a severe testing of affliction. They have been afflicted severely and this has put their faith in God to the test. It's easy to talk about trusting God when nothing goes wrong, when everything is great, when you lack nothing. Uh, it's easy to, to talk about how much you trust God. The moments when you really discover the depth of your trust in Christ is when the world falls apart, when the ground crumbles beneath you, when disaster strikes unexpectedly, when you lose something you thought you couldn't live without. Those are moments of severe testing through affliction. And he says this is God's grace among them, that they've been in this severe testing of affliction. And he talks about another thing, abysmal poverty. Literally in the Greek, it's poverty into depth. It's like he describes it as they're so poor, it's like they're in a pit of poverty. It's not just... They're, they're a little bit poor. He describes it as profound poverty. Again, when we talk about the grace of God, these aren't normally the types of things we talk about, right? Let me tell you about God's grace in my life. I am abysmally poor. I am afflicted severely. That's not the way we tend to describe God's grace. But it isn't just these things. This is more the context in which the grace is taking place. This is a very dark context. Severe affliction, abysmal poverty, but the grace of God is evident in the abundance of their joy. I wonder if you've ever experienced that, a moment where, man, you did not have anywhere near what you needed where your life was, was really a mess, but inexplicably, you, you find joy in your heart that doesn't care. 
And that's what Paul is trying to convey. He's talked about this idea over and over in this letter that the treasure we have in Jesus Christ himself is so precious, so glorious, so valuable that no amount of hardship or lack in any other area of our life compares. He's better. And the joy cannot be stolen from us by any of these things because what we have in Christ is gloriously surpassing it all. And he says, this is God's grace. Not that they had a whole bunch of money, not that nobody was making life difficult for them, but that those things didn't matter because they still were overflowing with joy. In fact, God made them rich in a different way. This, there was an overflowing of riches and their wealth was a wealth of generosity. I think one of the mistaken things we often say in churches, or some maybe we don't outright say it, but we kind of imply it, I think, a lot of times, that generosity is something God allows the wealthy to do. Generosity is something for people who have extra. That is not the biblical pattern. In fact, when Jesus talked about it, he didn't praise that kind of generosity. He was standing by the offering where they had these kind of trumpet things and you'd throw the offering in and make a lot of noise going down. And, and uh, he was watching and, and the wealthy people were walking up and making a big show of all the noise they're making, throwing their offering in. And then a little widow shows up with two mites. The mite, I've seen replicas of this coin. It's like half the size of a penny, maybe less. It was the, the smallest denomination of coin available. She had two of those, and she dropped both of them. And Jesus said, you know what? All these other people were giving from their abundance. They had more than they needed, and they were given stuff they didn't need. But this widow, she didn't have abundance. Those two coins she just dropped in, that was all she had. Yeah, it wasn't much, but it was all she had. And she demonstrated generosity, not from abundance, but from abysmal poverty. She gave all she had. That's the kind of generosity the Bible talks about. Not giving what you have left over, but giving what you have. And let me take it beyond the realm of finances. Think about the things we are told as we follow Christ that we are to give love, affection, service we may think I can't give love and affection and service until my need for love affection and service is met once I have all the love affection and service given to me that I feel like I need then from my surplus I can start giving to other people that's not the way the Christian life is described we don't give from surplus we give what we have 
And we don't hold hostage our giving of love and service until somebody gives us what we want. We give it up front. That's generosity. And it applies to every aspect of our living, not just our finances, but the idea of giving. uh, If there's a need and I can meet it, I'm here. If I have what you need, I'm here to give it. Paul describes their generosity. He says, I bear witness. So Paul is now in Macedonia, and he says, I can give you firsthand witness, eyewitness information on this. This isn't hearsay. I'm here now. I am witnessing it in my own, with my own two eyes. I, they, as they were able, no, not, not as they were able, beyond what they were able, And of their own initiative, not because I convinced them, not because I badgered them to do this, but they had their own initiative. They were begging us with great earnestness for the grace and fellowship of this service to the saints. So Paul Paul saw them and saw how poor they were, and he, he said, I'm not about to push you guys to give me an offering for the people in Jerusalem. You're in as bad a shape as they are. But they didn't wait for Paul to ask. In fact, they were begging Paul, don't rob us of the opportunity to share in this. We want to be part of this fellowship, this grace of God. And we want to love our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And don't let our poverty rob us of participation in this. Let us be a part of it. How do you say no to somebody like that? Paul let them. And they gave not from their surplus. They gave from their lack. This is how God's grace works in us. It puts us in this dynamic of of giving all we have and relying on God to refill what's left. And we don't, the generosity we discover in Christ is not based on our resources, emotional, mental, physical, financial. It's not based on that. It's based on the faithfulness of the God who is moving us into this generosity. And we are giving not out of our resources, we are giving out of His resources. How have you seen God's grace giving you joy and strength to serve in the most difficult moments? Verse 5. And they did this not just as we hoped, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and to us through God's will. Paul says, let me explain how this worked out there, why this happened. First of all, they were the ones begging us to participate in this. I wasn't there pushing this offering among them. So how did it happen? Well, he says they didn't do this as we had hoped. Paul had hoped maybe that in some way they, some of them at least could afford to participate in the offering somehow. That was his hope. He says, no, what what we found here went beyond anything we had even thought could happen. 
And why did it happen that way? Well, it happened because they got their priorities right. They gave themselves first to the Lord. You see, the reason they wanted to participate in this offering was not Paul. Paul had the idea to do this offering, but it wasn't that he had so eloquently conveyed the importance of this offering. That wasn't the reason they were doing it. They weren't doing it because they loved Paul and thought it was a great idea. They weren't doing it because it seemed like a wonderful program and they wanted to hitch their wagon to what Paul was trying to do. It had nothing to do with that. The reason they wanted to do this was that they had given themselves first to the Lord and then they paid attention to God. God, what do you want us to do? And God said, I want you to give generously to this offering. God sent them back into this. And it's only because they had first surrendered to God that they came back with much more than anybody could have expected. I was talking in the beginning of the message here about this idea of putting God first. And you might think if you do that in your life that you're depriving the people you love in your life of something important. It's just the opposite. When you put God first, he's the one that sends you back with more than you had to offer initially. And you're cheating your children and your family of things if you put them ahead of God. But when you do the way they did it, When you give yourself first to God, that's how Jesus said when he was talking about needing things, what am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? How am I going to pay the bills? How's it all going to happen? Jesus said, let me tell you the secret. Seek first the kingdom of God and his rightness. And all these other things will be added to you. We need to live our life the way Jesus is challenging us to live it. Put him first and let him send us where he wants us. I've been talking about this for a year. We have a prayer time that we have set aside every week in which we as a church are doing this. We are gathering around tables and all we're doing when we pray is ask God, God, show us what you want and please do what you want among us. That's the way God was working in Macedonia. And amazing things were happening. Things that went beyond what Paul had even the dared to hope. Because they had given themselves over to the Lord and let the Lord take the initiative. It wasn't based on Paul. It wasn't based on a program. It was based on what God was doing. Have any of you seen any of the uh, documentaries that have come out about the the scandal with Hillsong, New York. I watched some of it. It strikes me. I listened to all these ex-members of the church who are now disillusioned, and I listened to their interviews, and they all kind of have the same thing to say. They talk about the pastor and how dynamic he was and how special he made them feel and how gifted he was. I mean, he, was, he could move a crowd in a, in a way you wouldn't believe. And, and uh, they talk about this all the time. And I haven't heard any of them talk about what Jesus has done in their lives. There's a tendency to focus our attention not on God but on something else, on a program or a person or a pastor or a leader. 
The Macedonian church has got it right. They were doing this not because of Paul, not because it was a great idea. They were doing it because they surrendered to God and God said, do this. What would it look like if you were giving yourself to God first and to others as he has led you to? Verse 6, so that we exhorted Titus that just as he had begun to do, so also he might complete this grace among you as well. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and in all diligence and in our love which is in you, may you also excel in this grace. So Paul says, so that's what we told Titus. Titus had delivered a, a painful letter of Paul uh, before this letter, and he's just now rejoined them in Macedonia. And now Paul is going to send Titus again with this letter to Corinth. And he's telling, we've encouraged Titus to go down to you and to complete this offering among you, because this is Paul's plan. Once he gets to Corinth, he's going to set sail and go to Jerusalem and deliver the offering. So Corinth is his final stop. He says, we are sending him to you so that he will complete uh, this grace among you as well and give you the opportunity to participate in it as well. And he has a word of exhortation. And this is a consistent in the first letter of Corinthians and the second letter of Corinthians. Paul always says that God has done amazing things in the church in Corinth. They are ridiculously gifted. He says, you know, that you lack no gift. I mean, God has just given you. Uh, how often in churches do you say, boy, I wish we had somebody who could handle this kind of thing. Uh, well, in Corinth, God had amply supplied all the gifts that were needed for church life. And, and uh, he had given them great knowledge and understanding. And, and he talks about those things here, that they excel in all kinds of things. They excel in faith. They genuinely trust God. They have put their trust, their faith in God, and they are faithful to God. In speech, they are able to put into words what they believe and how they've come to know Christ and be eloquent in sharing that information, knowledge. They have come to know uh, a lot about this faith that they share, and they are able to share it eloquently. In diligence, they're not lazy. They're not sitting back. They're uh, actively pursuing obedience to Christ and, and the things of his kingdom. In fact, they excel in the love of Paul and his companions. God has bound their hearts to the church in Corinth. And that love of all these people who have ministered in Corinth has also borne significant fruit among them. They have excelled in all these things. You might think, okay, well, if they're, if they're so great, let them be. They're doing great. Just pat them on the back and move on. It's been said, and I think it's true, that the Christian walk is on an incline. And we are always either climbing higher or rolling downhill. But there's no stopping. There's no staying put somewhere along the way. And if we think we've reached the, the summit and we've acquired it all and we have maxed out and we are now we can bear the proud label of mature in Christ and boom, I've got it. 
Let me sit down on my front porch and enjoy the waning years of my walk with Christ. You've got it wrong. Because there's always a new grace in which to excel. You might think, boy, that's, that's an exhausting image. It's like, who's the guy that pulls the boulder up? Is it Sisyphus? Uh, has to push the boulder uphill every day. That's not the image I want you to think of. What I, what I think we need to realize is that no matter how glorious what we have found in this walk with Christ may be, we've only begun to scratch the surface. There's more glory. There's more grace. There's deeper things God wants to do in our lives and hearts. So we don't settle. We don't stop. We don't pitch a tent. We continue to push into it. And we are glad that God has caused us to excel in certain things, but that's not enough. We want all of it. And we will pursue Christ to our dying breath. And we will try to encompass in this life as much of that grace as we possibly can. That's the call ever forward. Don't get tired. Don't grow weary of doing good. Latch on to Jesus for dear life and push into it your whole life long. Don't ever stop. How are you making sure that you are continuing to progress in your walk with Christ? How are you ensuring that you are excelling in new graces? Sometimes we get it wrong. We think of God's grace as his kindness, his favor, healing hurts and supplying needs until nothing hurts and we lack nothing. Once we've matured enough in our faith, we will be fully stocked by God's grace and then we will be able to extend that grace to others. That's not at all how it works. God's grace is a dynamic force at work in our lives through all the pain, the affliction, the things that put our trust in God to the most severe of tests. God's grace is working in the many things we lack, in our poverty, in our weakness. And God intends to not only sustain us through all of this, but to grant us the joy, the wealth that the world around us cannot understand, a generosity that is in no way hampered by our own lack or poverty. So embrace it. Fix your heart on Jesus as Lord and give what is in your hands to give. Give the tithe the Lord demands and discover the joy of giving to voluntary offering opportunities. But don't stop at money. If it's time, give it. If it's service, step up and serve in Christ's kingdom. If it's love, emotional investment, give it now. Don't wait until you feel that all your wants have been fully met by others. 
discover the freedom of generosity that draws from the goodness and sufficiency of Christ, not from the stores of what you have to offer. We're going to sing a song, and this is our time to respond to the Word of God. God is calling us to come to Him in faith, to surrender our lives to Jesus as Lord, and to allow Him to do in our lives this work of grace He's wanting to do. Whatever God has put on your heart this morning, I want to challenge you to respond to God with a yes, to say to God, I want to surrender to what you are calling me to. I challenge you to put him to the test and see if he is not more glorious than anything this world could ever offer you. Let's all stand. There are people who are going to be here at the front. If you uh, have a commitment to make, come, take their hands, share with them whatever God is putting in your heart this morning and let them pray with you and encourage you. Please come while we pray, while we sing.